Welcome on this fine Lord's Day. There are no pressing announcements. We just simply have the call to worship. Wherein God calls us and the whole world to come worship Him. He knows our frailties, and so He's only designated one in seven days uh, to be a day especially dedicated to Him. Of course, throughout the week, we do what we can to pray and have family devotions. But the rest of the time, we're busy with other things in life, and God has designed it thus. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name give glory for Thy mercy and for Thy truth's sake. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of thy name, and deliver us, and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. It's by our hearts and heads in silent preparation for public worship. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 377, 377.
Let us pray. We call upon you, God Almighty, for your mercy and grace, as promised in the gospel, to be with us a special measure this morning as we gather together, those as your people, God, to worship and praise you, Lord, to draw nigh unto you by the blood of Christ, by faith alone. Help us, we pray, to that end, through the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and never shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have the responsive reading. It is good to read the Word of God, and uh, we read it in public. Although we use a call and response form, it's an insert inside the bulletin, Psalm 64. I will read the bold face. Hear my voice, O God, and my prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Who wet their tongue and like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrow, arrows, even bitter words. They encourage themselves in an evil manner. They commune of laying snares privily. They say, who shall see them? But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. And all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider of his doing. And clearly the psalmist is crying out for help and for God's justice. And one of the consequences of when God does exercise it in history, and he does it, of course, in his own time, in his own way, all men shall fear and shall declare the works of God. That's one reason why we, do. we pray for God's righteous judgment to be exercised upon the, those who would attack the church of God and God's honor, the unrepentance in particular. And, of course, praying that they would ultimately repent and that God's punishment would bring them to salvation. Let us pray. We indeed, indeed, God above, as your people, do pray uh, that your mercy would fall upon many, those who hate your name, as many of us were in our lives, that we were outside of Christ, all of us, Lord, we, we were never saved at one time, and we, we who were unsaved at one time, we ask God that uh, our neighbors and those, our family members and others, God, that we meet and know, our bosses perhaps, that know not of Christ, know not of repentance, know not of trust in him, but trust in themselves and their own good works, God, that you would bring difficulty upon them to the extent that they would succumb in humility to your spirit and to your word. And God Almighty, we pray for ourselves as we acknowledge our own sins, as we who are sinners saved by grace for our perhaps selfishness, for our perhaps pettiness or laziness and other things and sins that we have and thoughts and in word and deed and the various and sundry excuses we give ourselves, God. Help us that we may acknowledge our sins, whatever they may be, and acknowledge them quickly, God, and flee to Jesus Christ and plead the blood and ask for forgiveness from our Father as you call us in your word, Lord. We are thankful for giving us mercy in Christ Jesus for our transgressions. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit that brings conviction and illumination as we see in 1 Corinthians. And again this afternoon, help us, God, we pray, that we would, as your people, live such a life of repentance and always in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you be with our church and our churches, 
not only in our denomination, but in sister denominations, not only in our sister denominations, but all churches that name the name of Christ Jesus and His Word, and are sincerely following and striving to understand and obey and believe in the truth of your Bible, here in Denver in particular, God, that you would be with them, that you would remove any false instruction and false teachers from their midst, that you protect them and give them shepherds that love you and love them and will feed them the whole counsel of God, that the members therein would grow in love and patience in the fruit of the Spirit, that we would grow in love and patience in the fruit of the Spirit, God, as well. And uh, we ask that you would exercise through your word in these churches, our churches and all other churches, God, the discipline of your word, the discipline that you've given the leadership of the church, as we read in 1 Corinthians 5 and elsewhere, uh, where if sins are bad enough, that there will be a call of public repentance. And uh, we ask, God, that you help purify your church and give her a strong witness here in the city and metro area of Denver and elsewhere across this nation, uh, this dying nation of ours in many ways, and that we would be a light and a darkness. That, God, we would stand firm upon your truth, that we would not live in fear and embarrassment for following Jesus and his word. And so, God, we pray for this society of ours, for this nation, as we who are citizens therein and are called to love our neighbors, and part of that love is to bring the truth and to pray for them. And so, God, we ask and pray uh, for this nation and this society and the leaders therein and all the people therein, God, who know not Christ and want nothing to do with your word, that they would repent, that they, God, would see their wickedness, that they would have access to good and faithful preaching, have access to the Bible, and feel conviction in their hearts by the power of the Spirit, God, that Hollywood would be cleaned up, and uh, that all their efforts to propagate wickedness and transgressions and um, perversity of all stripes, God, would come to knots and that they would lose money in those endeavors. And so, God, we certainly pray for their repentance. We pray the same, God, for the businesses. Uh, as we are seeing now, that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Praise be to your name. Uh, businesses are picking up the mantle to kill babies, to support women, to give them the money, because they'd rather have them work than have children to stay home, because they're so greedy in many regards, and so much so, Lord, that they wish to pay for murdering of children, that you would also bring them to naught, that you would shut their, down their plans, God, and bring them conviction, we pray. And so, Lord, we pray for uh, the leadership of this nation that's especially endowed in the politicians, both locally and statewide and nationally, God, that you would also bring their plans, their wicked plans, uh, to nothing, that they would fall into their own traps if they were not going to repent, God, and that they would indeed, Lord, feel the conviction of their hearts and the wickedness of their hands. And so, Lord, may you maintain a godly leadership, uh, those who maintain godly laws, laws in accordance to your word, Lord, protection of life in particular we think of, and other such likes, laws, Lord, across this land and in our own neighborhood, in our own city, and in our own state, God. And so we ask these things, Lord, for the sake of our neighbor, for following your law, even if they're unbelievers, is better than following gross, outright iniquities and violations of your word. And certainly, God, we pray that such good laws and leaders and protections for the church, Lord, and for our families, God that we would have leadership that would maintain justice of some semblance in our neighborhood and our city, we pray. We ask these things, Lord, for your namesake and not only for your glory, God, but for the good of the church and for our peace, for our prosperity, we pray. Again, not to our own ends, but our prosperity be used to help those in need in our midst in the church, especially, God, and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're thankful and praise you, Lord, for giving us moisture that we have been praying for and the rain that we need, and that we would continue to pray for such and ask, God, that we would have both physical peace, physical protection, and financial peace as well, but above all, the peace that passes understanding through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. 
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We thank you, O God Almighty, for the continued blessing you've given us, even in the midst of the odd economic conditions we find ourselves in, Lord. You've blessed us for many years in this church. May we use them mightily for your namesake, God, and with wisdom we pray for your glorious name that we use these things not for our own selfish gain. Amen. While we are standing, let us go ahead and sing Psalm 110A, 110A. Let us read it together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Verses 40 to 45. It is a mistyped sermon title. It's a willing Savior is the name of the sermon. A willing Savior. Verses 40 to the end. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in the deserted deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. Let us pray. We thank you for these words, God, in which we see the expansion of Christ's ministry, and more precisely, Lord, his willingness as a Savior to heal his people, as we will see God, of course, heal our souls above all. In your name we pray. Amen. Here we are at the end of this chapter of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and we read of yet another miracle, but this time there is a difference. Mark offers some details in bringing to light the glorious truth of Jesus' care and love for his people that wasn't in the other miracles, which seem to highlight more or less the power that he is bringing forth as the Messiah. Here it is his willingness to use that power. Our Messiah is not only a Lord and a Savior for His people, but a willing Lord and Savior, not against His desire, but because of His desire, wanting to bring us from sin and into His marvelous light. Let us look more carefully then at these verses to see that this is indeed so. And so the first point here is Jesus is willing to heal, verses 40 to uh, 40, the 42 here, the uh, willingness of Jesus to the leper who also himself comes. First of all, what is a leper? It is not necessarily given the description there in the Old Testament, as you know, in Leviticus. I'm sure you all just sat there and read it this morning. That long chapter of the description of what is on the skin. It's a skin disease of some sort, but it seems to cover all kinds of diseases. What we know as Leprosy is called Hansen's disease, a specific type of leprosy, perhaps. Skin lesions and nerve damage, and it's bacterial. So it can be spread in certain ways, especially affects the skin, the eyes, and the nerves. And when it progresses too far, there's loss of vision, you could lose your nose, or paralysis. It is very rare today, and it is treatable, but... Only if you know about it, because you could have it dormant, as it were, or slowly growing into you for years, and people not know it. What happened if you had leprosy back then? 
Well, we know from the law of the Old Testament, according to Leviticus 13.45, they had to cry out that they were unclean, so others would know. If it's not visible on their body, it has spread about. As you know, the clothing they had covered a lot of their body. They would have to warn people that they were unclean. He was, of course, supposed to be examined by the priest and make that declaration official and formal, not to examine himself, indicating uh, that the disease... The fact that he had to go to a priest indicates that the disease was given symbolic meaning because the priest was not a doctor. They had doctors back then. They had home remedies and the like, and they would go to someone in the neighborhood who's good at that stuff if they happen not to know it themselves and get help. This is common back then, even in Israel. To go to the priest, however, because you didn't have to go to the priest for other ailments and sicknesses per se, uh, this shows that it has symbolic Meaning, And we read that symbolic meaning highlighted here in Leviticus chapter 13. That's the chapter that deals with uh, the leprosy issue. It's a long chapter. Verse 46. All the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone. Without the camp shall his habitation be. That language of being unclean is ceremonial language, not doctor language like we would think of today. Although it has, of course, uh, the extra benefit of keeping him and his bacteria away from you by being isolated, but God had used it to teach them the ceremonial lesson of moral cleanliness. That is, don't sin. Leprosy, in this case, God was describing the broader idea of leprosy here in chapter 13, is a picture of sin. A picture of how widespread it is upon the body and how dangerous it can be, a contagion of sorts, even in society, as we see today. Public wickedness is unchecked, it spreads. And so the godly Jew understood this, understood that the ceremonial law was never designed, that is the sacrificial system, the priesthood and everything attached to that, clearly this is attached to the priesthood, that's part of his job, was there to teach them not only the need of a Savior, that is who Christ is, Christ is our great high priest, but why you need the great high priest, because you are unclean, you are morally or spiritually unclean. You need a Savior, or you will have judgment, like the judgment brought upon the sacrifices, the death of the sacrifices. That's what we deserve, to be like those animals. That's all the imagery. It's two parts, the sin and the Savior in the ceremonial system. So you can still read them, although we don't enact them anymore. Hebrews is very clear about that, the book of Hebrews. As you read through it, think about how it connects to either the Savior or sin, or both, as in the case of the sacrifices, as we know. That's supposed to be us. That's what sin is deserving, is death and consumption by fire, which is symbolic of, of course, judgment and hellfire. But also, it points to Christ, who is our Lamb, who dies in our stead. It's both. But what we read here, and understanding the context in which he lived, and they had leper camps outside the city. They lived with each other. But they are isolated and alone, and with only one another, and don't have much contact at all with anyone else outside their small camp. So he would likely be wary and uncomfortable around healthy people. As he was told early on, you've got to tell them you're unclean. You've got to warn them, and you can't live with them. And he seems to accept here that Jesus may stay away from him like everyone else. If you are willing, he asks. Not that I know you're willing. There may be some uncertainty here. Because he knows. I think what we're seeing here is that he is unclean. He accepts that. And the Messiah doesn't have to touch him or heal him. And so I think we see here a description, as Matthew Henry unpacked a little bit, from the leper of our own condition, of course, of sin, which is upon us and makes us unclean, but also the condition of humility and of a believer in Christ Jesus. We who know our sins, 
will have humility of that sin. And belief in the power of the Messiah, you can make me clean in submission to Christ's decision if you are willing. That is a picture of those who follow Jesus. The disciples, and we are his disciples as well, and just simply means followers or pupils more precisely. We sit at his feet and learn from him. First come to him with humility as the leper came before him, recognizing his condition. I am unclean, and I need to be cleansed from my sin and my guilt. I need a Savior. Those who follow Christ will know their condition, that they are sinners on their way to hell and need Jesus Christ. And their solution is Jesus, if he is willing. And so humility is a hallmark of believers. They know their condition. Humility is knowing your place in God's universe, and your place is lower than low outside of Jesus Christ and deserves hell. He also had a belief in the power of the Messiah. You can make me clean, he says in verse 40. Not that maybe, I'm not sure, perhaps. The trust in Jesus here, when he comes to him, implies the belief that he can indeed save and cure him from his uncleanliness. So he no longer has to be set aside and isolated from his community anymore, more precisely because of sin separated from God. And then, thirdly, his submission to Christ's decision. Not my will, O Lord, but your will be done. It seems to be saying here, if you will, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This is but a variation of our humility, knowing our place and God's sovereign position over us as judge. And the Savior's good pleasure to save his people. And the the Savior's position here in particular, and his unique office as Messiah, the Anointed One, to save his people from their sins. And that salvation is out of our hands and in the hands of Christ Jesus. That's what the leper is saying here. And that's the message that ought to be preached from the pulpit. That when we bring the gospel, we tell people the gospel is for those who are repentant, who see their sin, their need of a Savior. They're humble. For those who cry out for mercy and know the Savior and submit to Him. And thy will be done and not mine, O Lord and recognize the power that comes from him, and so we preach the power of God in salvation as well. These things must be there in the preaching as well as in the person who listens to the gospel and replies the way the leper replies. And Jesus responds. He's moved with compassion, stretches out his hand and touches him in verse 21 and says, I am willing to be cleansed. Be cleansed, be clean, be purified by my touch. And as we know, not only of the leprosy upon your skin, but a leprosy of sin upon your soul, as only Jesus Christ can. He is a willing Lord and a willing Savior, if we would but ask. If people would but ask. That's the gospel there in a nutshell. To call people from the four corners of the earth. Come to Jesus. He has the power. He has the authority. And he's willing to save if you would but repent or be humble and know your position in his moral universe and submit to him. That is Jesus, our Lord. And here he cleanses his people. I talked about that before. He emphasizes and he's there for the health of his people and fulfillment of the prophecy. To heal their body, because he's concerned about them. He loves them. Our God and Savior is not only the Lord of the soul, he's the Lord of the body. His miracles upon the body are there to show both the spiritual reality that we need a miracle for our soul, but also the physical care he has for his people, his willingness, his compassion, as I will talk about in my third point, upon us, body and soul. And so he gave the church the office of deacon, to take care of the body of his members, their physical 
physicality that they exist in, the world that we live here, and we will have a better version of that, the resurrection of our bodies, because that too is part of our salvation. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, shown his love and compassion for his people, both body and soul here, and his willingness above all. I am willing, and that's sufficient, and they shall be saved, both body and soul. You shall be saved, brothers and sisters, body and soul. But there's more in these texts and verses to unpack. The second point here, Jesus is unwilling to heal, which seems so counterintuitive to what I just read and said. But if we dig a little bit deeper, we'll see exactly what's going on here and the importance therein. Verses 43 to 45, And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus strictly warned him, verse 43, and sent him away at once. And what did he warn him? Why would he warn him after he healed him? He says, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go straight away to the priest and follow the requirements of the Old Testament Levitical law we read in chapter 13. Present yourself to the priest so he would examine, and you'd be shut up for seven days to see if the disease is gone permanently. And if it is, you're clean. It's over with. It's done. And of course it will be, because Jesus heals. He heals to the uttermost, as we saw last week. But he says, and he warns him, (laughs) say nothing to anyone. Keep your mouth shut on your way to the temple to get purified credentials from the priest. What an odd thing to do and say if he's a willing Savior. And yet he does this more than once in the Gospels. We read in the prior verses, verse 43, uh, we just read that, very similar language, Mark 8, 25 and 30. And then when he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Remember that miracle? Then he sent him away into his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. It's Mark 8, 25. In verse 30 he says, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. There's a great proclamation. That's good news. And then he, that is Jesus, strictly warned them and said, you shall tell no one about him. I wrote the wrong verse down before. And he strictly warned him and sent him out at once and said, um, the wrong verse, when he healed the demon-possessed man back in 20, 22 and whatnot. So, brothers and sisters, we read, Jesus, as on more than one occasion, told people to be quiet about the good news. In chapter 3 of Mark, we read, verse 10, For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed him about to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. What an amazing declaration, but unfortunately to their own damnation. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. I think chapter 3, verse 10, 11, and 12 give one indication of why Jesus forbade people at times, not always, of telling them who he really is. That he's not just another prophet, but he is the prophet of all prophets. Because if the word got out, he'd be swamped with people wanting a miracle. And that exactly happened when he's there in Capernaum, as we saw in the prior verses, healing of the man possessed by a demon, and they all rushed to him, almost crushing him at one point in Mark 3.9, in which they had to jump onto a boat. And he said here in verse 10, uh, 11 and 12, and he went up on the mountain, called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. He didn't call everyone. He called his disciples at times and spent time with them to instruct them, and he can't do that if he's healing people all the time. He is God, yes, but he is the God-man, and as the Messiah and a man, he is finite as a man. Can I talk to only people who are within hearing, shouting range? Like we are finite, can only do so many things at once. So he knew his limits, and he used, as I pointed out, and we'll point out as we go through the Gospel of Mark, he used the providential means that God has given mankind, common sense, 
to limit our time, as we read in the prior verses, where he got up early in the morning to, again, implicitly, I would argue, avoid the large crowds of people who were already looking for him, so he could pray. Jesus had an ordinary life, although he did heal people. But he lived like the rest of us. He ate. He slept. He had to avoid people so he can talk to other people, so they don't take his time up. He lived the way we live, which is ordinary common sense to put things together in a proper order so we can get things done in this life. And Jesus did the same thing. Another reason to keep people silent, they'll keep coming and coming looking for miracles, but not interested in hearing the teaching. They want the good stuff in their mind. And he'll have little time for prayer and little time for instructing the people who need to hear these things. Uh, or, as I mentioned before in verse 12, he sternly warned them and he went up to the mountains to be with his disciples. So Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, we read elsewhere, but was outside in the deserted places and they came to him from every direction. He finally swamped them again. Matthew gives another reason, Matthew twelve fifteen, We read, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and a great multitude followed him and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will give my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. We read in particular there, he will not quarrel, quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voices in the street. Which I take to mean Jesus did not come as a flashy superstar bragging about his accomplishments. It says, he warned the multitudes, those he healed, not to make him known, not to run around and brag about him that way, that it might be fulfilled, these very words, that he was a humble healer. A humble Savior. And of course, Jesus did heal, and heal often. Here in Matthew 12, uh, 15, it was he healed them all. Multitudes followed him. And anyone who was sick within that multitude, of, that throng of people, he touched and he healed them. Or he spoke his word, or however he did it. Jesus healed when appropriate, first and foremost, according to the triune plan of eternity past, which situations they deemed necessary and that they ought to heal, and he does, because we know he doesn't always heal. And other times, within that plan, of course, he would heal uh, to cause a cause and effect chain reaction of those who would believe. And God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit know the future, for it's part of their plan. And they knew when he said, don't tell other people, we read here and we read elsewhere, what? They went and told other people. They just did it anyways. It's an interesting human phenomenon. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit and Christ in particular knew this. And he knew saying it would bring this about. And of course the miracles often were used to bring the people's attention to greater purpose, which is his teaching. They could have all the miracles they wanted. But if they did not have the teaching of his word, they would have no saving of their soul. Because they have to repent and believe. And Jesus preached both the law and he preached the gospel to bring them to repentance. And the healing that he brought was to that end. Not for the sake of healing their bodies, although he loved them, but more importantly to make them pay attention to the guy who brought the healing. Listen to him. He has something to say. This is an everyday occurrence, something special about him. Pay attention. And unfortunately, we know in Capernaum, most of them rejected Jesus, we read elsewhere. Jesus wants to heal and heals whom he wants to. Because although not always healing the body, he is most willing to heal the soul. And so the third point is Jesus is willing to save, not just willing to heal, which was the first point, but to save which is more significant and important. Not the healing of the body, 
the healing of the soul. He is still a willing Messiah, brothers and sisters. Obviously, when Jesus healed others, he didn't do it against his will. He wanted to. In thy book it is written, O Lord, to do thy will. I come to do your will. We read in the Psalms. He knew exactly what he was going to go through and the pain and punishment, and he did it for us. Mark highlights Jesus' compassion and willingness in particular. We read there in verse 41 that Jesus moved with compassion. It's a strong word. Stretched out his hands. It's an intense term, highlighting Jesus' love and concern for his people and their bodily concerns. And if he's concerned about their body, how much more is he concerned about their soul? Because their body, in comparison, is going to fade away anyways. This man's going to be healed, but he's going to lose that body to death. He's going to have a new body, a resurrected body. You think Jesus is concerned about little things only? If he's concerned about little things like the body, how much more the soul? We'll lose our bodies in this life, but if we have our souls and we have God, we'll have our body back as well and we'll go to heaven. Jesus healed his people and he healed their souls above all. Jesus' compassion was not just for the body. His greatest concern as the Messiah was for their souls, and that's why he gave them the teaching of his word. His words are what? Life. They are spirit and they are life, we read in John. That's why he came to heal his people from the misery of their sin, from the cancer of the soul, the leprosy of sin. And not just back then, but even today, to heal his people, to heal all who call upon the name of our Lord and Savior today, to touch their souls and to bring them new life, to give the gift of the Holy Spirit that they may see the truth, as we read in 1 Corinthians 2, to invigorate your will to follow him all the more. But willingness of the Messiah is meaningless if he is a weak Messiah. That's why one of the points of a believer who comes before him in humility, a sinner, if you're willing, you can make me clean. They have to come, and part of that faith is recognizing God is powerful enough to do it. He's not an impotent Savior. And unfortunately, many people preach Christ and his willingness to save any person on the earth. A willingness to save those who repent and believe and yet present a weak and ineffectual Christ who cannot really save them unless the people let him save them. And we see it's reversed here. He said, if you're willing. Jesus didn't say, if you're willing. The leper said, if you're willing to save me. And that's all the difference in the world. Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. He did not doubt Jesus was powerful enough because Jesus is powerful enough. Jesus is willing and able to save to the uttermost. He is a willing Savior, but don't lose sight of the fact that he is a powerful Savior. It's willing and able. If he is willing, then he is also able. He is able. The question is, is he willing? And so we come to him and we tell people in the gospel message, don't hold back, don't be afraid, don't be ashamed. The Savior, if you are repentant of your sin, if you hate your sin, if you're fleeing from your sin, if it's a burden to you and the guilt, and you know you need to be saved from damnation, come as the leper came to Jesus with a humble position and disposition of repentance, if you are willing. Not me, O Lord, but you. And thus submit to him and his power and his might. Jesus is willing and able, brothers and sisters, to save, to save from the uncleanliness of sin. And will not, that sin will not stop him from saving your soul. To save any who repent and come to him in faith and rest in the good news. And we, brothers and sisters, who have, can rejoice as the leper rejoices. And although we are not told to be silent, as he was told to be silent, praise be to God, because we would have to be silent. Although I'm sure our Lord and Savior forgave him. We can rejoice. He's obviously happy and excited for the saving of his body, and especially the saving of his soul, because he came with a humble heart, recognizing the Savior 
a willing Savior, a Savior who is willing and able to save to the uttermost. We shall be and are being saved, brothers and sisters, until the return of Christ Jesus our Lord. And we ought to rejoice as this leper here rejoiced, as we are delivered from the leprosy of sin in our lives. Let us pray. We thank you, God Almighty, for your word and for this picture where Mark unfolds a little more detail and gives a little description here. Certainly, God, Jesus was moved with compassion often in his ministry. His actions show it, and yet here the word is used specifically, God, to highlight to the readers, Lord, more about Jesus' ministry as he unpacks the greatness of Jesus Christ in his earthly work for the saving of our souls. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 491, 491. grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.